invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. The theme that we are going to be looking at through our study of Philippians is struggling well, the joy of the Christian journey. Uh, Struggling well, the joy of the Christian journey. Uh, Many of you know that uh, Carol and I go the third week of July every year to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for a pastor's seminar, and this year the speaker, Tom Euler, uh, spoke on this theme of struggling well, not from Philippians, but from his kind of his own life and experiences. And while I won't be using any of Tom's stuff here in this series, I liked the phrase, struggling well. And the reason why I liked it is because in this world, in this life, we are in a struggle. There's, there's no way we can have all of the joys of the new creation here in this life. Now, we'll have some, and we will get tastes, but we don't have them all. We struggle. Why? Because we live in a sin-cursed world where there are struggles. The question is, how do we struggle well? And this morning, the theme is going to be from verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, we need to learn to struggle well in community with other believers. The importance of the connection within the body of Christ. Our relationship with Jesus is not only an individual relationship with Jesus Christ, it is a corporate one. It is a relationship that includes other members of the body of Christ, particularly as we participate in the local church. We need to learn to struggle well in community with other believers. With that introduction, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Because, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Please have a seat. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2, some key words 
that are in these two verses that help us understand how to struggle well in community. Quite often when you read the letters of uh, the New Testament, you'll just kind of gloss over the first couple of uh, sentences because they're kind of introductory and you think you kind of heard them all. And there are some ways in which verses 1 and 2 are distinct from other letters of Paul. For example, he does not mention that he's an apostle here, which is his normal way of addressing. He's talking about himself and Timothy, more on that in a moment. Um, but there's a lot of things that are very similar, and so we kind of just kind of move on. But let's dive a little deeper and think about some of the key words that are here. First, the word servants. We as believers in Jesus Christ are not our own. We are not our own kings. And one of the things that leads us to struggle in this life is when things don't go the way we plan. That leads to anxiety. It leads to frustration. It can lead to uh, discouragement. But the fact is that we're not our own. Paul acknowledges this right out of the gate. He doesn't belong to himself. He's not his own king. Instead, he is a slave, a servant to a king, King Jesus. He mentions and Timothy. This means that Paul is a mentor, a discipler. Uh, if we are to struggle well as believers in this life, it happens when we are intentional about investing our lives in other people. One of the things that I have learned in my own life is that when I feel discouraged because things haven't gone my way or the way that I would think that would be the best, if I just take the time to invest my life in others, I find that the struggle becomes a little more joyous. I learn to struggle well. To all the saints, struggling well happens when we are expansive in our reach. And he uses the word saints here. Sometimes we get the idea that in order to be a saint, you have to have performed two miracles and the Vatican has to approve it. That is not what a saint is. Paul defines a saint as a person who is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus for what he did at the cross to forgive us of our sin and to give us new life, to turn from our sin and to turn to Christ in faith believing that his payment for sin at the cross is sufficient to pay for every debt we owe God and he purchased our salvation so that we experience eternal life with him both now and forever. That's a saint. And Paul is expansive in his reach, isn't he? To all the saints who are at Philippi. He adds, with overseers and deacons. Isn't that interesting? Struggling well happens in the church with a plurality of leadership. The word overseers is a reference to the elders of the church, a plurality of elders. That's why as we were gathered together for Pastor Jeff's installation, there's more than one elder of our church. That when, we, when we're in this life that is a struggle, we will struggle well when we acknowledge that we need a plurality of leaders. Deacons are servants to the church who are 
to perform whatever duties it is that the overseers would see fit as to be best for the glory of God and the uh, uh, thriving of the church. Then there's this word in verse 2, these two words, grace and peace. Grace, a great New Testament word, and peace, a great Old Testament word. Grace, struggling well, comes when we long for grace, unmerited favor, both in our lives and in the lives of others. And so, Paul is praying for the believers at Philippi that they would have this experience of unmerited favor in their lives that would enable them to struggle well in the lives that they live here in this incursed world. Peace is an Old Testament word, shalom, describing wholeness, completeness, that everything is in its proper order and place. Not in my order and place, but in God's divine ordering, right? Grace and peace be yours. Then I want you to notice in these first two verses the God-centered approach to life that Paul has. So often when we struggle poorly, it is because we take a me-centered approach to life. How are things affecting me? And everything is life revolves around me. Notice how Paul does not do that. Rather, he's very God-centered in his approach to life servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are key words that help us understand how to struggle well in community with our fellow believers. One other note that I will make regarding the first seven verses that are kind of key words is the number of prepositions that are used. If I were going to teach a New Testament Greek course in prepositions, I would use the first seven verses of Philippians 1 as an example because in seven verses, Paul uses nine different prepositions. And a preposition is kind of a hard thing to define, but it's a way to relate one thing to another. And if we are to struggle well, we need to be able to have these relationships straight. And so, Paul uses prepositions like in and with and from and upon and another word for with and the word for that means in the sense of on behalf of and then another word for for which means for the purpose or result. He uses from and until and because. All of that to say that there is an importance laid in the heart of the apostle to relate the various aspects of our lives to, one and to, to each other in a proper way if we are to struggle well. If we don't relate them correctly, we will struggle poorly. These are some key words that help us understand how to struggle well in community. Now let's look at verses 3 through 6, the means of prayer as a way to struggle well in community. Paul begins with thanksgiving in verse 3, the importance of thanking God for other people. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and onto others. I thank my God. He treasures relationship in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, 
making my prayer with joy. He's acknowledging the blessed parts of his life that come from God. And he thanks God for this relationship in community with the church at Philippi. There's an attitude here in verse 4 that springs forth from such thanksgiving, and that attitude is the word joy. You're going to see it several times in this letter. Joy is the result, not because there's an absence of struggles, but because they've learned to struggle well, and struggling well brings joy. Notice the absolutes in verse 4. In, all, first, in verse 3, all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, <laughs> with joy because of a partnership. Not just any partnership, it's a partnership in the gospel, verse 5. And it's not just a one-time partnership, not just kind of a little happenstance where they kind of flashed by each other, but actually from the very first time that the Philippians were uh, introduced to the gospel, from that first day when they were introduced to the gospel until the very moment now where they live in relationship to Paul, even though he's in prison in Rome, they have this partnership. Verse 6, praying this prayer of thanksgiving with confidence. I'm sure of this, Paul says. He knows God's great end for us all. Whenever you're struggling poorly, you should back up and think of the great end for which God has created us. And here Paul extends out to the great end of God for us all who are believers in Jesus. The one who began a good work will bring it to completion. Hallelujah, isn't that wonderful? We will be brought into the presence of God and enjoy Him forever. He began a good work. He's going to keep doing that work, even in the midst of the struggles of this life, and He's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, that last phrase, the day of Jesus Christ, tells us that struggling well requires that we have the right view of when the end is. Otherwise, we're going to struggle poorly. If we say, I will be joyous when COVID is over, <laughs> or I will be joyous when we get our finances straightened out, or when I graduate, or when I retire, or when I get married, or, 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 we will struggle poorly. We have to have the end correctly understood. The end is the day of Jesus Christ, the day when the new creation comes into existence. The means of prayer is a way to struggling well in community. Verses 7 and 8, struggling well in community means communicating our love. Verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. To have someone in your heart, isn't that an interesting phrase? Paul has the Philippian believers in his heart. 
Now, it's interesting that the Bible never uses the phrase asking Jesus into our heart as a way of describing how we come to believing faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that that's a wrong way to express it. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't use that phrase. It does say, uh, Paul prays for the believers at Ephesus, people who are already believers, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But he never used, the Bible never uses that phrase to describe our relationship with Jesus. But here, it does describe our relationship with one another. That verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Wouldn't it be interesting to say to one another, this week I asked you into my heart. <laughs> That'd be an interesting way to say it, right? Paul has these Philippian believers in his heart. It's a description of his affection, a description of this horizontal relationship that exists among members of the church, Christ's body. It's encouraging to verbalize that love, to demonstrate that love in acts of service, to be able to pray and care for one another in all the ways that love can be expressed, to say that others occupy a prominent place in our daily thoughts. This is Paul's heart for the church at Philippi. Why is there such a bond of affection between Paul and the saints at Philippi? Well, he explains it there in verse 7. For you are all partakers with me of grace. They are sharing with Paul in grace. What kind of grace? Not simply the grace of salvation, but the grace of suffering. Think of this, the grace of suffering. Sharing with Paul in the grace of suffering Paul's own imprisonment. Do you see it there? You're partakers with me, sharers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment. This likely calls to mind when Paul first met the people at Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, he was arrested and put in jail in Philippi. But now, several years later, he is now in Rome imprisoned, and the location has changed, but he's still a prisoner of the Lord Jesus or for the Lord Jesus, I should say. Um, and, and he's saying, you're sharing with me in this grace of suffering in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Sharers of the grace in defending and confirming the gospel. There is a mutual mission in which both are engaged. They're both the church at Philippi and Paul are engaged in mission of making known Jesus Christ. The church at Philippi locally in their world and also in providing financial gifts that enable Paul to carry on his ministry and Paul in his ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentile world. They are sharers together in a mutual mission. It would not be true that they were sharers in grace in the defense and confirmation of the gospel if they were not engaged in the same mission. They're engaged in the same mission. Making disciples together with others is going to help you struggle well in the challenges you face in life. 
If you are not engaged in making Jesus known to people who do not know Him and in helping other believers to know Him better, you will struggle poorly in this life. But as you are engaged in your mission, you will be surprised, I think, at just how the circumstances of life will, yes, be struggles, but you will be able to struggle through them well. If you ignore our mission from Jesus, or if we do not join with others in that mission, we will struggle less well. Verse 8, through good and bad, Paul says, we have supported one another in undeserved ways. That's what he means when he says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, I miss you deeply with the same love that Jesus Christ has for you. This is struggling well in community, isn't it? A brief history of Paul's relationship to the Philippians may be in order here. Here's one reconstruction that I'd like to share with you that is based largely on the work of a man by the name of Moises Silva. And here I'll show you some maps and pictures, but I assure you that through this series, I won't be showing nearly as many maps and pictures as I did in the series in Judges. Just today, you're going to get a whole big batch of them. Um, in obedience to a vision, Paul leaves Asia at Troas and crosses into Europe. He walks from Neapolis, do you see that there at the center top? He walks from Neapolis 12 miles with Silas, Timothy, and Luke on the Roman road called the Via Ignacia to get to his first stop, which is Philippi, a Roman colony named for Alexander the Great's father. This place, this is Neapolis here where Paul arrives and then walks the 12 miles along this road. This is the actual Via Ignacia, the very road Paul walked upon. Uh, one of the reasons why I share these things with you is so that you would have a concrete understanding that the things that happened in the Bible are really true. They aren't made up fables. The events comport exactly with the descriptions that we have geographically and historically. Paul walks down this road to Philippi with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Uh, this place had a lot of history. It's a massive site, and there were lots of retired Roman soldiers who lived there. Why? Because earlier, the two Roman uh, guys, Brutus and Cassius, fought a war. There were two major battles that happened at Philippi against Mark Antony and Octavian. And Mark Antony and Octavian were victorious over Brutus and Cassius. And as a result, Philippi became a place of renown because Octavian became Caesar Augustus. Um, and so, as a Roman colony, guess what? It was exempt from taxation. How many want to live a pla in a place exempt from taxation? Yes. And so, there were a lot of people there. Um, 
it, uh, it was a flourishing place. Lots of impressive altars and temples were built. Anyone who stopped participating in the worship of the emperor um, was viewed as a rebel, however. And so here's some pictures of the site, massive site at Philippi. Um, although there were not enough Jews in Philippi to form a synagogue, you had to have ten men. And there weren't ten Jews to form a synagogue in, Phil in Philippi. It was a Roman colony. There were, however, some God-fearing women who met to worship the true God alongside the river outside a town at this location. There was a businesswoman from Thyatira named Lydia who became a Christ follower along with her household. And I remember sitting here at this place and just feeling very moved. I wept as I considered this was the first introduction of the gospel into Europe. And because of that, I, of European ancestry, have, can come to know Jesus. We have a missions conference coming up, and we seek to make Christ known in unreached places in the world and to bring theological education to pastors and Christian workers all over the globe. There are places yet who have never had the gospel introduced to them. I'm glad the gospel went to Europe. And I pray that the gospel will, in my lifetime, be able to go every place where it has not yet gone. There's a beautiful chapel there commemorating this place where Lydia and these God-fearing women established a place of worship. Um, it's really kind of a nice, uh, nice little chapel there. Um, one day, as Paul and his team were heading to the river for worship, a slave girl started shouting out about their mission. She does this for days. Paul gets annoyed by her and tells the demon to depart from her, which the demon does. Her owners are really angry about this because she's been making money for them. And so they drag Paul and Silas away from the river where they've been meeting into the marketplace here where uh, they accuse them of going against Roman practices. Remember, it's a Roman colony with all the Roman worship and all of that. And the crowd joins the attack. The magistrates tear Paul and Silas's clothes off their backs beat them with rods and toss them into the nearby prison. And you can see in this picture these various kiosks, these areas between these big massive walls where the shops were located as you walked down the row. All of these were shops. It's, a, it's an ancient version of a mall, an outdoor mall that was actually the shops were covered over as you walked outside, but you went inside these shops. We think we've invented new stuff. They take Paul and Silas to prison. This is the place where Paul and Silas were imprisoned. Uh, pretty 
stark place, kind of broken up, and I'll explain a little bit why in a, in a moment. Paul and Silas sing and pray in prison at midnight, and the prisoners are listening to them, and suddenly uh, an earthquake, that's why all the thing is propped up and all that, because earthquakes are part of this region, an earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison, and all the doors are opened, and everyone's chains are unfastened. The jailer is about to commit suicide when Paul intervenes. The jailer calls for lights, and he asks, what must I do to be saved? I think he's asking more, what can I do to be saved from the consequences of all my prisoners going free? But Paul gives the wonderful response, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so Paul dives in to explain what he means in its fullness, and the jailer and his household are saved. As a Roman citizen, Paul demands that the magistrates come to free him and Silas. The magistrates, becoming aware that they've just beaten a Roman citizen, apologize profusely and they ask Paul and his company to leave the city. They first stop to see Lydia and then go on their way. This prison uh, where they were is located right by the main road today which just over to the right of the main road is the Via Ignacia and the marketplace. So this marketplace is less than 100 yards from the jail. And so they take them to the marketplace, they beat them, and they throw them in jail just a few yards away. Uh, just some more pictures of the jail and also how close that jail, I'm taking the picture from the jail to the marketplace. They're really close. Um, <clears throat> They stop to see Lydia, they go on their way. In the ensuing three weeks, Paul meets up with difficulty at Thessalonica. You see Thessalonica just west of Philippi. Several times, this tiny Philippian group of believers send money to help Paul. Paul then goes further west to Berea, and then south to Athens, and then to Corinth, which is just at the bottom left of your page of the map there. In Corinth, he spends 18 months, and during his stay at Corinth, Paul again receives financial assistance from his friends in Philippi. A year or so after this trip is over, Paul sets out on another trip. This time, it is at least in part to raise money from the Gentile churches that he has planted for the need of the poor Jewish church in Jerusalem. By now, there's been kind of a recession that's hit the empire, and even the Philippians are in difficult financial straits themselves. Paul was not intending to even ask the Philippians for help because they'd helped him so many times before, and he, he knew of their problems and their need. But as soon as the Philippians heard about the need, they insisted on giving to it. Paul completes his fundraising and his third missionary journey, bringing the offering to Jerusalem for the church there, which is way over to the right side of your page of the map there, uh, is Jerusalem. Jewish opponents of Paul get him imprisoned, and he waits for two years in prison at Caesarea, which is also just off to our right over here. Um, the Philippians 
learn about this, and they long to help Paul out again financially. However, their own impoverished condition and their uncertainty about how to help meant that they couldn't. They didn't know how. Uh, you remember a few weeks ago when Jabalani, we heard that Jabalani and Godwin were in the accident. One of the things that we struggled with, how do we get funds to Zimbabwe to help these guys? Same problem that exists today as existed in the first century. Um, Paul, in his imprisonment there at Caesarea, appeals to the emperor and sails for Rome under guard. Once in Rome, Paul gets a mixed reception, even from followers of Christ, that we're going to look at more closely next week. Paul had opportunity to share Christ among the Jews, and as he does so in his imprisonment in Rome, his message spreads even to the imperial guard, the praetorian guard in Rome, and beyond, empowering many believers to speak the word of God. However, many Jewish Christians in Rome sought to undermine Paul's message by insisting on Jewish practices for believers. A few months after this experience in Rome, Paul's situation becomes known by the church at Philippi. So, here's Paul way over here in Rome, and here's Philippi. And they finally learn about Paul's situation over in Rome. They rouse themselves to raise a large monetary gift for Paul. This is despite grave problems at Philippi. They have physical needs that are producing anxiety. They begin to doubt if their Christian faith can sustain them. In that stress, people in the church are getting selfish. Some of the influential women in the church are not getting along. Because the Philippians see the need to help Paul, they send a man named Epaphroditus with a large gift. They ask Paul, with that gift, they send the message asking Paul if it would be okay for Paul to keep Epaphroditus on as an assistant, but to send Timothy back to them. They had a special affection for Timothy, and they wanted him to come back and help their fledgling church. But on the way to Rome, <laughs> this reads like today's work, on the way to Rome from Philippi, Epaphroditus becomes seriously ill. And he can't get to Paul as quickly as everybody expected. The Philippian church hears about it and is deeply anxious. Eventually, Epaphroditus does make it to Rome. By this time, Paul has been in prison for about a year. And so the offering, that large offering they had raised, was a great blessing to him. This again reads much like what was going on in our own lives as a church this past week, where we're sending off Mr. Chris Seifert to Zimbabwe, but Tuesday morning, Chris falls and hurts his knee so badly that he was not able to go on the trip, much to his own disappointment. It's, it's a story that continues in the church today, where God has his own means and his own ways and his own sovereign plan. As we seek to follow him, the question is, will we struggle well or will we struggle poorly? 
News of the problems at Philippi coming from Epaphroditus need addressing. But Timothy cannot come yet because more and more people were abandoning Paul. Paul thinks, I got to keep Timothy with me. And so he decides, Paul does, to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi with the letter that you are holding in your hands. Amazing. Struggling well in community means communicating our love. Verses 9 through 11, struggling well in community means a God-centered life together. Not a me-centered life, but a God-centered life. Look at the content of Paul's prayer. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, there are many commentators who say that your love for one another, that's the object, may abound more and more. I'm going to be an exception to that. I think it is, it is my prayer that your love for God may abound more and more. Uh, not because I don't think it's important for us to love one another. That's evident in all the words that have come before. But in the words that come after this, it suggests that this is about love for God. It is the only way to struggle well, loving God. It takes attention off of our surroundings and onto our magnificent God. I saw an illustration of this taking our eyes off of our circumstances and onto our magnificent God. I saw an illustration of this Monday morning. This is me at sunrise on Monday morning. Uh, there is a, uh, uh, a saying, uh, Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Well, you can take warning on Monday. We had some storms later that day, didn't we? Now, there are two ways to look at this picture. You can look at the guy in spandex, um, neon spandex, and really get your eyes on your circumstances, right? That's a problem. Don't go there. Instead, have your eye on the magnificence of God. You know, to look at the sunrise uh, is kind of the illustration here. It might be a lame one, but that was the one that I thought was most helpful. To think about our love for God would grow. It's not wrong for us to think that love in general might grow or our love for one another might grow. But I think primarily what Paul has in mind here is that our love for God might grow. The reason that we know this is how love grows. It grows with knowledge. This is content about the nature of God. And in all discernment, this means experiencing God in relationship. In other words, Paul is praying that they would know quantitatively, objectively who God is, but then subjectively in experience, know in relationship with God who He is. And it's progressive. We are never done with this, that it may abound more and more. It's, a, it's the journey of an eternity to know God more and more in knowledge, who He is, and in experience, our life and relationship with Him. The goal of this prayer in verse 10 is to approve what is excellent. Sorting out the best things, the things that really matter, the things that are excellent. 
So often in our lives, we can uh, make choices. Have you ever wondered, how do I sort out the things that are just okay and the things that are absolutely the best, the things that are excellent? Well, by praying that our love for God may grow more and more, both in objective understanding of who God is and also in the personal relationship with Him, we will be able to know what is excellent. And when we have that level of discernment, it will change our lives. We will grow in holiness, in Christ-likeness, in what theologians like to call progressive sanctification. The, the purpose of God's work in our lives as believers gets increasingly fulfilled so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. That's becoming more and more like Christ, a purity and blamelessness for the day of Christ, which is a term for all that happens in the end times fulfilled in the new creation, that we are through the experiences of our struggles right now, knowing God better objectively, knowing God better subjectively so that we can figure out what's best and so grow in purity and blamelessness culminated in the new creation, the day of Christ. Oh, what joy is ours. Paul now adds an analogy to this process in verse 11. As we know God in content and in experience more and more, we learn what is best. With that discernment, we ourselves are changed. We learn to struggle well. And this struggle that we call life, Paul compares now to a tree that's growing, the goal of which is not merely to exist and then to die. Did you know that that's not the goal of your life? It's not to exist and then to die. Rather, it is to bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness. And there's only one way for that fruit of righteousness to be born in our lives. According to verse 11, it comes through Jesus Christ. If you have never put your faith in Jesus to be your Savior, you cannot bear the fruit of righteousness. But you can if you do put your faith and hope in Christ. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin by what He did at the cross. He will do so. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The fruit of righteousness can be born in your life and you will be able to struggle well. And one day, everything will be made right in the new creation as you enjoy Jesus Christ forever. And this is the goal that ends up at the end of verse 11 that is the focus of our church. Seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ, all of it, our lives, our relationship, our knowledge of God and content and experience, all of it is so that there would be glory and praise to God. The Philippian church was suffering. They were struggling. They were struggling because while they once were respected fellow citizens of Rome, the tables had suddenly turned. They were no longer respected. Because of their allegiance to Jesus, they could not hold allegiance to the emperor above all else, and that was what was demanded at Philippi. Literally every public event at Philippi, instead of the singing of our national anthem, Every public event at Philippi was accompanied 
by something the Philippian believers couldn't do. Proclaim the emperor as Lord and Savior. They couldn't do it. On top of this, there's internal unrest in the church. People are disagreeing with one another. Maybe it's about how to respond to that outside opposition. It's not division, not strife, as much as it is disagreement and unsettledness. We have both of these today in the church of Jesus Christ, don't we? The Philippians needed instruction in how to struggle well. So do we. I think we are increasingly living in an age where to be a believer in Jesus Christ will mean being ostracized by the larger culture. I think that those kinds of challenges can lead to an unsettledness in the church as we try to sort out how do we live in this uncertain world. Will you pray with me that the Holy Spirit will encourage us together to struggle well in community as we experience this remarkable letter. Heavenly Father, guide us in our adventure through this letter to learn to struggle well in community with other believers with a joy that the world cannot give. Bring salvation to those who need it and bring encouragement to that person here in the sound of my voice who is struggling poorly. May their love for you abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may be able to approve what is best and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In Christ's name, amen.